First I heard the word gay associated with me holding hands with my buddy. Now I'm hearing that I look feminine, gay feminine. I'm hearing these two words from angry men. From that point after that happened, I put it in my head, I was like, I have to be as like, as not this as possible. Welcome to What's Underneath, the podcast that will inspire you to accept the skin you're in and step into your most whole, powerful self. I'm Lily Mandelbaum, and sitting next to me is my mom, Elisa Goodkind, and we are the creators of Style Like You. In our podcast, we bring you the extended interviews from our video series, The What's Underneath Project, in which diverse role models strip down to open up and claim the power of the skin they're in. The first step to self-acceptance is being radically honest about the things you're ashamed of. And by listening to these stories, you are tapping into the healing power of vulnerability, truth sharing, and the unshakable bravery to be yourself. You're giving yourself permission to recognize that you are completely beautiful and enough as you are. Hi, Mom. Hey, Lils. How are you? I'm good. And how are you feeling today? I'm still riding high from an amazing shoot that we had on Friday. It was our first shoot in a little while because most of the episodes that we're airing right now were shot late last year, and we just started shooting again for new stuff. Yeah, I'm riding the shoot high and the inspiration that I got from our subject, whose name is John May, who you all should follow on Instagram if you don't already because she's an infusion of light and inspiration and style and body positivity and she's made a big impact on me since and gen z wisdom yeah i've all weekend i've been like re-looking at all my clothes and like seeing them all in a new light after being inspired by her style and and after having felt like i'm in a style rut like for most of the pandemic like in my sweatpants what about you i'm good i i'm forever in this ongoing self-improvement self-evolution journey and It's been very intensified during this past year, and I feel a big shift, I'd say. Like, I feel a big shift towards trust and being more centered and more grounded and, yeah, not feeling, I don't know, just kind of more at peace. I feel an increasing sense of peace, I would say, within myself that, you know, that's come through a lot of looking at myself in a very intense way and facing a lot of, you know, very, very deep things. And and on the other side of that is an increasing sense of peace and self. And so I feel kind of that. I feel more at peace. So that all said, we're really excited to bring you this week's storyteller, Eves Matthew, who is an incredible activist, model, singer, volunteer, dancer, actor, all around Renaissance man. We discovered him, you know, during the height of all of the protests and the kind of great awakening of last year. Well, that's what he actually that was he calls it that. And I think I just picked that up because I've been watching his videos so much. We were just so inspired whenever we would see him on Instagram because he was traveling across like 26 states, I think, throughout last summer and last fall on the front lines of all kinds of protests and and he um unfortunately got arrested many times, but because he was really like putting his whole self into the protests and defending people that were being treated badly by the police officers and I think we were just really struck by the level of commitment that he has to the work that he was doing and how much joy he he also was posting these amazing like videos of himself dancing and leading all these dances at these protests and we were just we were just really taken by him and also one of the main things that he does when a trans person that he knows about or has become aware of is killed he makes it his mission to make sure that they are known that their name is known and goes as far as he can for them to be well taken care of and respected in death and not and not ignored or Or misrepresented, misgendered. Yes, he has this incredible, incredible open heart and empathy that comes from a lot of his own struggle as a kid growing up gay and, you know, getting the kind of messaging from what he calls angry men that there was something wrong with him. And he talks a lot in his interview about no one asks to be born in any way that they're born. They're born the way they're born. And how could that possibly be wrong? And how could how could society possibly justify ridiculing or cruelty or marginalizing anybody for how they're born? It makes absolutely no sense. 
Didn't it bring back memories for you of yes. raising Lewis and some of the things you wish you yes, had done so differently? Yes, so during the interview, I was, you know, kind of jumping out of off this my own chair um, at certain moments because Eve's story was very much paralleled because he's close in age to my own son, who's gay. And there were just a lot of parallels in terms of experiences where he was put into situations where he was up against a lot of judgment and assumptions and criticism, even if it was covert or subtle. And that included me. That included, I didn't, wouldn't have rejected him at all if he came out to me at a younger age, but I just wasn't aware or sensitive enough to be attuned at a very early age to the signaling. And that had a very damaging effect. I think the main thing that you didn't do that you would do differently is not an attunement to the signals. It's just not making any assumptions about anything. Like there was just an assumption at that in still in your generation that you're like straight until proven gay. Yeah. And like, I don't think that was a lack of attunement. Right. But I think now, like, regardless of being attuned to the specific like vibe of a child, like the way you would raise a child now is that you would assume nothing. And I would also... And the same with probably like gender too, even. No, I would assume nothing. And I would very much listen carefully to signals or signs. I would not do any of the, do you have a girlfriend or, you know, do you like a girl or talk about marriage? I mean, not that marriage has anything to do with gay or not being gay. I'm just saying all of the myriad of things that I would never impose any kind of systemic rule, you know, that at that time I was sort of unconsciously carrying, even though I, you know, I didn't think I was, I thought I was this really big rebel, but I was still carrying still a lot of patriarchal rules that I would never enforce or subtly speak about or talk about or constrict a person in any way with ideas of. So, yeah. So anyway, yeah, so Yves' story is, his story is incredible, but also just he is, you will hear in a second, just such a sweet, sweet, kind human. And being in his presence and getting to listen to this interview over and over again as it's been edited has been so refreshing because he's just, he's really like one of a kind. Okay, so we hope you enjoy Yves's episode and we will see you next week. Thank you so much for your support and love to you all. So can you talk a little bit about how you're feeling right now? I'm, uh, I get anxious before I do any sort of um, speaking thing, always. Even if I'm just um, doing something myself, because um, I, I really value the words of people and uh, the words that I leave with people as well. Can you talk about what your style says about you? Uh, yeah, I love jewelry more than I love clothes. Um, Because I feel like, you know, as personal as style can be, uh, jewelry is um, just a tad bit more personal. Um, And I have certain jewelry pieces that I wear uh, every day, every single day. Um, Underneath this, I have uh, necklaces. And one of the necklaces that I have um, contains the ashes of uh, someone very, very, very dear to me who unfortunately passed away two years ago. Um, His name was Harrison, just an amazing person that I was really blessed to know. Um, And yeah, I have his ashes um, in this necklace and I I never take it off, ever. And you know, it's it's a piece of jewelry, but uh, to me it's like a, it's a piece of history. It's a a piece of my future and uh, it's a piece of a person um, who, even though isn't physically here, uh, is still very much so a part of my life. I'm very sentimental. Um, like small things uh, mean so much to me. Like I have receipts from times that I've had dinner, like five years ago, um, where I, it was just an amazing time with people that I love and I keep the receipts and I have, um, like tags and, you know, it would, it's almost like contained hoarding. Just all these different things that l- would look like trash um, to someone else. But it's things that I go back to, um, especially when I'm struggling, um, to remind me of uh, times that I've had on this earth that uh, made me feel um, seen. I unfortunately uh, used to be an addict 
And uh, I've been clean now for nine years. It'll be 10 years next year on June 16th. You know, watching uh, videos of my family and I or different fragments of things that I've kept over the years kind of help keep me grounded and um, bring me back to my feet, so to speak. Over the years, like these uh, sentimental things just grow um, more and more uh, for me and I gain an even bigger appreciation. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the assumptions that you think people make about you based on how you look? You know, people think that I'm a drug dealer or I'm an ex-convict. There are times as well, you know, in certain settings where a guy will approach me to have a conversation and will say something that's incredibly misogynistic because he thinks that I'm straight. I'm heavily tattooed and I'm like mask presenting and I have traits to myself that would fit in a stereotype of how people would see a man or view like a cis straight man. What do you think it is about you that makes people think that you're, that you're a drug dealer or an ex-convict? The stereotype that's been built around uh, black people with tattoos and black people with face tattoos. Um, because I was, uh, I once was at a, a party and a fight had broken out and I didn't even know who the fight was happening, who was happening uh, between. Um, and it was like a, like a fashion party thing. But there was this guy there uh, who was white, who was heavily tattooed as well. And when the authorities came, there was a girl describing the situation. And she was describing who was trying to stop the fight. And the people trying to stop the fight was uh, me, black, heavily tattooed person, and the white guy, heavily tattooed person. And as she was talking to the officer, she said, yeah, um, the white rock star looking guy and the black thuggish looking guy. And so like, even in that, you know what I mean? Like her like trying to explain to this officer like what was happening and what was going on. I had to tell myself, you know, how upset can I be at this girl for using this description? Because where, did, where was she raised? Who was she brought up around? Um, what kind of language was spoken in her household for her to associate in a white tattooed person as a rock star and a black tattooed person as a thug. And also we're all wearing suits. Not that that has anything to do with who you are and what you do, but just to give you more context of what's happening here. We're at this fashion party. All of us are models. We all have the same job. We all have the same job. Two of us are heavily tattooed. One is described as a rock star. Other person is a thug. Do you feel like there's an assumption about what kind of person you are or what kind of personality you have based on your face tattoos specifically? Yeah, especially like now with the mask situation <laughs> because I'm a very uh, uh, expressive person when I speak, but you can't see my mouth, you know? <laughs> Even like prior to that, before I would speak or say something, you know, people would uh, have this very surprised look on their face or I once was on a set uh, years ago and I used to have a lot of hair and they're like doing my hair in the mirror and I'm some, the hair person was asking me about like the tattoos underneath my eyes and I'm like talking and um, explaining these things. And as I'm talking, this girl who was there who I'm not even, I'm not even sure what her role was uh, on the set, but she said, you speak really nice for a black man. And the hair person, was like, we reacted before I did and said, what? And then I just like looked over her and I was like, do you believe that what you said was a compliment? Do you feel that that was a compliment? What if I told you you didn't look stupid for a white person? There's such a lack of accountability when it comes to the way that we have been conditioned to address things that we don't understand and things that we don't know. Everything is approached in such a um, aggressive way. And it may not seem aggressive when it first, like through the delivery, but it's like, no, like what you said, like kind of sucks, kind of hurts. It's kind of inappropriate. It's a little bit rude. I'm still gonna hear you out. Cause if I spend my entire life listening to people who only agree with me, I'm not gonna be able to grow. I'm not gonna be able to change. And there are people in my own family who have 
different views than I do. And I, I take the time to listen and get a better understanding of where they're coming from or why they feel the way that they do. But there are definitely 100% certain things where it's, it's beyond like a disagreement. For me personally, when it comes to trans rights, I'm not having a conversation with you. And that's just it. I'm not gonna debate with you in regards to human life that is here and valid. I'm like that, that's one of those things where I'm like, there is, there is no conversation there. There is no conversation. Or in regards to me being black, I didn't ask to be born, but here I am. I'm, t I'm doing what I can. I'm not gonna have an, argue, an argument with you about me being black. Can you talk a little bit more about your tattoos and, and like your journey with them and, and what they mean to you? Yeah, of course. When I first started getting tattooed, I was an addict and I was a teenager and there were friends of mine who were passing away or uh, were killed for being in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. And uh, I so often was in those spaces uh, with people and I started to get you know, pieces to commemorate these lives. Um, and as time went on, I started to collect more pieces. And you know, I'm only 26 and I didn't know that it would um, accumulate as fast as it has. But I also feel like I'm 97 years old <laughs> and um, like living in this like young man's body um, with all of these tattoos. Because even though it happened in a short span of time, there is just um, story after story after story existing on my skin. And it, I feel so empowered by it. Um, and I feel so at home in my home, referencing my body, um, because it, it makes sense to me. And, you know, of course, you know, there are people who have scrapbooks, people have yearbooks, and I have tattoos. And um, I always think to myself, you know, if my house was, it was ever on fire, I would be able to run out like hands-free because every single thing that, I, that means something to me, like the most is tattooed on my body. I, I wouldn't lose anything, which is why I don't really take offense to people uh, saying negative things about me being tattooed because there is like no way uh, any word could come close to even touching the uh, the surface of the strength that lives in my skin. Can you talk a little bit about the circumstances that led to doing drugs and to addiction? Yeah, of course. Uh, I, I tried to kill myself when I was a teenager, when I was uh, 15. It was not a good time. Like you can't really see past your struggle. You feel like you're gonna be s stuck in this, this age, this emotion, this feeling for the rest of your life. And my friends and I would always say that, you know, we're gonna be 15 for the next 20 years because you felt like, you were, like there was nothing outside of what you knew and um, that you were just so incredibly isolated. Half of it also stemmed you know, from my struggles of not coming out yet because there was this other being who's also me, who was uh, trying to breathe. And I was suffocating him and saying, no, like, no. And um, from that moment, you know, I wanted to turn any situation into um, a piece of art or something um, that I could get tattooed to cope with these chapters that I was finishing and going through in my life. Can you, paint a little bit more of a picture for us that would show what were the circumstances and the details that got you into this space in the first place? I was living in Florida at the time. I was aggressively bullied and uh, I got the shit beaten out of me by guys who I uh, called friend. It was a pretty white school, yeah. But there were like older kids and stuff from like other neighborhoods that I, I used to skateboard a lot who would hang out and stuff. And there was like these particular group of kids, uh, guys who were a little bit older than me, but uh, we're just like really close, or at least I thought we were. And I didn't have like many friends, but uh, the few friends that I did have, I was like thankful, but I wasn't out to anyone. And I had uh, unfortunately gotten acquainted 
uh, with this, uh, this older gentleman at the time who um, do what uh, older gentlemen do to pray. Yeah. Because I wasn't out to anyone and like no one knew about me being queer, I did all the convincing I could do mentally to tell myself that there was nothing wrong with that situation and what was happening. Because there was no one else I could like really like, uh, like be this way. He had gotten me even more involved in the drugs that I was doing. It was introducing me to new drugs and uh, put me in absolutely horrendous situations. I felt like I was waking up with bricks tied to my ankles and my hands, trying to brush my teeth. You know, I'm just dragging my body along. And I felt like I was just a waste and that there was, uh, there was no point of me being anything to anyone ever. You know, as scary as the world is, I think the scariest world like lives between our ears and it's here. Only you can see it. I hid all of this from my family. I didn't tell my parents <clears throat> until I got clean. I got clean when I was 17. Because even though I was like at, at a war with my brain, my mind was also like, they can't know you're gay. What was your fear? That sweet word that humans shy away from all the time, rejection. I remember I played Little League Baseball when I was like seven, eight years old. There was this kid on the team. We were like super close, super close with each other. Um, we would like practice batting, like practice um, like shortstop catches, like whatever. I was like really into it. Um, but like this kid who happened to be the coach's son was um, super friendly with me. And um, after my first like few months of playing Little League Baseball, we would go in and out of the dugout holding hands. And it wasn't even, it wasn't even a thing. It was just like, we're like really fucking close. And we just, we're just buddies, you know? There was this um, time where for the next season, the assistant coach and his dad pulled us aside and said that um, we can't hold hands walking out of the dugout for the games. In my little mind, I was like, oh, they must want us to be like prepared for the game. So we didn't hold hands walking out, but we did hold hands walking back in when the game was done. And so um, he like shouted at me afterwards and was like, um, he's like, I, I told you guys, like you, you can't do that. And I was like so confused because I had thought we could, I thought we couldn't hold hands walking out of the dugout. I didn't know we couldn't hold hands walking back from the game after it was done. And that was when the assistant coach says like, you can't do it because it looks gay. And that was the first time I had ever heard the word gay in my life. And I, even before then, I always knew that like something different was happening inside of me, but I didn't know what it was or that it had a name. Because even though it was different, it was normal because I was just going about my toddler, young child life looking at things the way that I was looking at them. And so I just assumed in my head, I was like, oh, like boys like boys, boys like girls, girls like girls, right. girls like boys. Like it's just, this is just what it is. But then I heard this word that I had never heard before. He said, oh, it looks this way. He said it in such an angry way that I was like, hmm, what is that? Like, what is that? And I was so curious. I was like, I don't even know what that means. And I remember going home and we had one of those, uh, those computers all gonna have like those massive backs to them. And I type in the word gay in Yahoo search. And it was like people with like the same sex holding hands. There was like a picture of like people kissing, same sex people kissing. And I was like, this is like, this looks like pretty normal. But it's like, but he called it this. But like he said, it's so mean. So I guess I, I can't do it because it, it's this. I remember like feeling so strange and now like in my head having this word that I was connecting with this action that I was doing because, and I was doing this action because I felt loved and warm and comfortable and welcome. But now there's this word that makes this guy angry that he associates with this thing. As a kid, my uncle once pointed out to me that I was hanging my hand like a girl. So like, 
I kept going back to what happened in the dugout. So I was like, see, I was like, damn, I have to stop doing this thing. Because someone was just, just talking to me, and my hand was like this as someone was talking to me. And I was like maybe 10 years old. And my uncle was like, why do you stand like that? And I was like, what am I standing like? And he's like, why are you doing this? And like, kind of like mocking me. And I was like, what? And I'm like 10. And I was like, wait, what? And he was like, he's like, it looks feminine. As I was like going through grade school and coming up to middle school, I was around like kids who were like, you know, like making out with kids in our, like in sixth grade, like seventh grade, like making out and like doing these things. And this was like what I was dreading the most. Cause I was like, fuck me, dude. You know, like now I have to like sign up for a fucking sport and like. Deny your existence. Right, exactly. I have to be like, not me. And I have to, you know, you know, find some girl who's like, oh, like, hey. And I have to be like, oh, hey. Here's a note. And it's, this was like happening in my 12 year old mind from these things that happened to me as a kid that I was like, I have to make sure I don't make those men angry ever again for the rest of my life because I will look gay and feminine. As a 26 year old adult person, I'm in my being and I'm in myself, but there's even times where someone's talking to me and I'm like this and I'll subconsciously go like this and cross my arms and people don't understand like, as a kid, especially a queer kid, there are two different childhoods happening inside of you. There's one that happens like outside where everyone can see, everyone is aware of what you're doing, your actions, how you pick things up, how you respond to things, the way that you agree to something, the way you shake and don't shake your head. And there's also a childhood happening inside of you where you're just like, I have to make sure that what's happening out here doesn't reflect what's in here because of the people that are out there. Mm -hmm. And like when that isn't addressed, you grow up having to go back and forth of unlearning things, trying to break down these conditioned ways that you were made to believe a certain person is supposed to be or how someone is supposed to act. And even as I'm saying this, I myself am learning every single day, every single day, things about myself and things about other people that are just different and that's fine, and that's okay. But the whole point is that we are learning. And when you're young, there isn't much space that's given to you for you to learn these things about yourself. Like something that bothers me like so much is when people speak on um, certain shows or like family shows that have like same-sex couples. When they, and people will say, why are they pushing this uh, sexual agenda onto our children? Where I'm just like, have you, how long have you been watching TV? Do you not see men and women kissing on TV all the time? And little kids watching it? It's, it's like torture. It's like torture. And people don't even realize they're hurting you. And it's, it's so hard having to hide your hurt in the room of people who are hurting you. And they don't even, they don't even know they're doing it. And you're just kind of just like, oh, I'm, I'm okay. I'm fine. And you get so used to lying about being okay that sometimes you almost partially believe it when you say it, even though you know you're not fine. You just, you're like, you're not fine and you know it. And having to maneuver all of that as a preteen, like makes you feel like you're an adult cosplaying as a, as a kid to like please the other adults and people around you so that they don't ask questions, so that they don't feel uncomfortable, so that they can go about their day. And it's like, why in the world am I having to suppress the way that I was born and who I am so that you, so that you can live comfortably? But then for someone to say that you have chosen to be this way. I have made the choice to suffer. I have made the choice to be isolated. I have made the choice to be thrown away. I have made the choice to have my rights dangling in front of my face every day of my life. I am choosing this. Not even to mention being a human. Just being a person is difficult. Living is hard. It is really difficult to get up and go and do stuff, be around people, entertain strangers, it is hard. No matter what your job is, whether you're an award-winning actress or you work in a Whole Foods, living is hard. But then to say that people are willingly making the choice to make their lives that much harder, it's just disrespectful to humanity. To say, oh yeah, they're choosing to be this way. I'm like, what? People are dying. People get killed for being this way. I'm choosing to be murdered. I want to be murdered. I want my life to be cut short because of who I want to kiss. 
I get like superheated when I talk about it because I have known amazing people who have had their lives stolen from them. Stolen, killed. I have friends who have been killed for simply being. And it's just not fair. Friends who haven't even seen the age, will never see the age 24, 21. And people say it's a choice. I mean, I choose to be proud of it. I choose to stand in it. I didn't ask to be born in it. But here I am, and here it is. And I'm, this is what it is. And people kill, will, will, will kill me for it. Murder. What was the turning point in your life, like, when you kind of came out of all that darkness and um, low self-worth? Was there a specific moment that was a turning point? Yeah, so I, I got clean when I was 17. Okay, this story may not make sense, and I'll probably sound crazy. When I was 17 years old, I was at a camp helping my dad, uh, like a youth camp. My dad was singing this song, playing guitar, and in the song he says, um, heal my heart and make me clean, open up my eyes to the things unseen, show me how to love like you have loved me. And so I hear these lyrics and I lose like feeling in my legs and I'm unable to like properly stand up. So I start to walk outside of the venue and it was at a hotel. And like, you know, when you are in a hotel and you want ice, you like take your, you take that bucket and you go to the cooler thing and you put ice in the bucket, you bring it back to your room and you have some ice. And all that will make sense when I get to the Okay, so I am walking out of the venue, I'm walking towards where those, like these two floors are at outside and I'm talking out loud and I'm like, you know, like, God, like, if you're real, I need something. Like, give me something. Like, I, I'm really struggling here. I, I don't know what to do. And, and that morning, I, I used. And I was like, you know, I, I, I really want to, I want to be more than this. I don't want to do this. And I was going to say, I need you to wash I was like, in my head, I was gonna say, wash me clean. But I said, I need you to wash. And before I could get the shh out of the second half of the word wash, this woman who was on the second floor of her room emptied her ice bucket. And it was just melted water, cold water. And it fell all over me, freezing water onto my body. I'm just soaked, I'm soaked in water, like I was baptized. And my friend, Billy, he comes out of the venue, follows me, he's like, Eves, why are you wet? And I was like, dude, she just, she, she threw water on me. And I looked up and she was like, I'm so sorry. And I was like, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And that was the last day I used, when I was 17. And I haven't used anything since then. It's been nine years. Hi, everyone. We hope you're enjoying this episode so far. We wanted to take a quick moment to remind you that if you're moved by what you're hearing, you can watch the video version of this interview by subscribing to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash you. That's youtube.com slash S-T-Y-L-E-L-I-K-E-U. Now back to the episode. I can't even explain what it felt like internally. I, I, I felt like I was born. And, and at this point, were you out already? Or had you, had you already come out? Or did you come out at this time? Yeah, I came out before. Like, I came out before I was, I came out when I was 16. Did you receive the rejection that you feared? Rejection, but not in a um, hostile way, if that makes sense. Like, there were certain friends I had who just, uh, just didn't want to hang out with me anymore. People in my family who, yeah. Which is why I'm like, I, I take family so seriously. I just really love people so much. And I don't know why. I don't know what it is or how to like put my finger on it, but I just always want to make sure that, um, that everyone is okay and that people are fed and feel loved and cared about. And there are times where I think that that's probably gonna be like how I get killed. Just thinking about someone that's not me. 
and thinking about people because I, I would do anything for anybody, no matter who it is, which is like a pro and a con at the same time. I like struggle knowing that there's like gonna be kids who don't have food tonight. There's like a woman coming home to like getting beaten by her husband. And there's times where I'm just, I'm up super late because I'm just walking in circles trying to figure out what the fuck to do. I'm like, how, like, what can I, what, am, what can I do? How can I be of service? How can I use my body, my mind, my hands? What can I do, you know? And that's why it's hard for me to fall asleep sometimes because I'm just thinking about these things that like, you know, there's a fucking kid being trafficked right now. Everyone is so beautiful to me and like has so much potential to do so many things. But then when I see cert like certain things happen or I see um, like the lack of things happening, I get so frustrated. I still in my head believe that I could be like this Easter bunny with baskets of love eggs. And I'm just gonna skip down a meadow and throw eggs to people. And they're gonna be like, love, 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 love. Can, so can you take us a bit on the journey of like the tectonic plates moving in your life and coming out and coming into your own voice and um, starting to understand and own your power? Yeah. So after I got clean and got washed, I, for the first time, actually heard myself. Like I heard what my voice sounds like. And I took it upon myself to challenge myself and say, okay, now that I've heard my voice, I should probably let it speak. What am I going to talk about? Who am I going to talk to? Why do I want to talk? I kind of made like this, this self-declaration of uh, appointing myself to a position of speaking out. What better way to start than with my community? Something that I already know, but could always know more about. And so I began, uh, volunteering in my neighborhood, going to uh, youth groups to speak and talk about um, what my life was like as an addict. And the reason why it, it flowed so well was because I was 17, 18 at the time, um, going to schools and uh, talking to kids. And at that time in my life, I had lost around 10 to 15 of my friends from drugs. And so when I would go to these schools, I would bring a photograph of all of my friends who have passed in that, up to that time um, in like the best picture I could find, them smiling. And nothing to give away uh, what has happened. And so I would pass out these pictures to the uh, students. And I would say, okay, I want you to stand to the right side of the room if you think that the person's picture you're holding in your hand is alive. And then like six kids would go. And I was like, I want you to stand to the left side of the room and think that the person's picture holding your hand is dead. Kids would go. And be like, every single photograph you're holding is of a dead person who I have known on this earth and who I have spent time with, who I've heard laugh, who I've heard cry, who I've danced with, who I've shared homework with. Just to like make it more real, besides me like listing statistics. You know, a lot of times when we talk about being an addict or like addiction, we talk about the drugs that we used and um, where we used them, but we never talk about the people we were with when these things were happening, what they meant to us. Because like, even though my friends and those people I knew and cared about died from addiction, they were so much more than what they were addicted to. They were artists, architects, like teachers. They were so much more than that. And I feel sometimes, even as recovering addicts, you're, you're only associated with like this one part of you. Same with like your sexuality. People only associate you with this one part of you and it's like, I am an entire person made up of many things. And this is just one thing about me. And that's the way that I approached going to these schools and doing this. And then I got introduced to social media. And so I wanted to um, do the same thing I was doing in person um, online. A friend of mine, she was murdered, she's trans. And I posted about her as a Woman Crush Wednesday. And I did it as a, uh, like a memorial post. And I had people who were um, messaging me and telling me like, you know, thank you for doing this. A friend of mine who was trans was killed uh, last year in Miami. And it was borderline impossible 
to find any information where she wasn't misgendered. I mean, it was just impossible. And it was article after article after article. And I told myself, you know, if I was disrespected, mistreated, and not acknowledged in life, my spirit would be at such unrest if I was treated the same way in death. And so I started to make these posts remembering these lives that are being taken the way that they wanted to be remembered while they were here. And again, I mean, there was, it was, they weren't on the news. It was, imp it was impossible to find, um, but I would be up for hours and hours, still now to this day, I'm up for hours and hours trying to find information. Um, but the one thing that um, makes me feel even closer to these lives is um, whenever I make these posts or like I'm researching and someone reaches out to me or I find information about like a small detail, about this person's life um, that humanizes them, such as purple nail polish with whatever outfit she was wearing. Or she got ice cream every Sunday after church with her little sister. Or she listened to Aaliyah every, every morning before going to work. Just like these small things because it's the same, and the same way that like, when talking about addiction, you're so much more than what you're addicted to. When you're killed for being who you are, you're so much more than your death, and you're so much more than the way that you were killed. So even I can, even if I'm able to find information about these reports, I always go the extra mile or try to go the extra mile to find personal um, characteristics and things about them that were um, just about them and who they were while they were here. And so me stepping into that position of uh, becoming that person has given me a sense of spiritual security, knowing that that is a responsibility that no one has asked me to do, and no one has told me to do this thing, but like that is one of my life's purpose, is to make sure that these people are remembered. Because I, I have seen so many people die, and I also have unfortunately seen people get killed right in front of me. So when I, speak about death and when I speak about these cases and these situations, I speak on it in such a way of remembering this person as if I actually knew them. Because if I f firmly believe myself when I say us, we, together, because that's how I see it. It's like, am I even just making a post about someone I don't know? It's a post about myself, because we are, we are the same. We, and we are a part of each other. And you know, of course, there are people who won't see it that way and won't understand, but that's okay, because it's, it's, it's not about like you understanding, it's about respect. And there are also so many, there are cases where someone has been so um, pushed out of their family that there is no, there's no funeral, there's no service, there's no obituary, no one knows anything about them. And sometimes when someone has been killed, especially if they don't have like a family member to come and identify the body, it just, I mean, it's just, they don't even care. But it's like, I'm their family, that's my family. Oh, like what was, what was her real name? There is no such thing. Her name is what she said it was. That is my family. And if we're unable to be there in that way, the least we could do is give them at least some sort of acknowledgement. And I, I, I try to think to myself, you know, when we have these lives that are gone and this quote unquote, I don't even like saying like they're a family because like I feel like it's a privilege to call something a family because of what that word means. But if there's like, these people who like who you were born into their household and even as even after you're dead after you've been you've been murdered and they call you and you're called to come identify the body of your trans daughter and you still don't show up you didn't deserve that light in addition to all of the amazing activism that you've been telling us about can you talk more about your current form of activism? 
So for the past four years now, I had been going to this uh, senior center um, on Canal Street on Mondays to uh, provide and feed uh, seniors of New York City and play bingo with them. And the way that my week would look was that would be a Monday. And then Wednesdays, um, there's this uh, amazing organization called Streetwork Project. And we provide uh, wigs and makeup and like skincare products and things for um, LGBTQ kids uh, who live in shelters here in New York. And the other parts of the week would involve me uh, working at the animal shelter, um, training and rescuing uh, pit bulls. I, there's other dogs there, but I only work with pit bulls because they have a, uh, a special spot uh, in my broken heart. So when quarantine happened, all of these things, I couldn't do them. I, I couldn't be, and we couldn't be anywhere. I was really struggling and having a hard time um, because volunteering also helps me stay clean. Being able to go out and do something and not be so in my head and focused on what's happening in my own life. I'm able to divert my attention to someone else who needs me and like who needs resources. Um, so I was really, really having a hard time. And then when the, um, um, I like to call it the awakening happened to America and the world, because I feel like for black indigenous and people of color and also uh, people who are just awake to these issues that we've always been talking about these things, but um, a select million number of people um, took off their glasses and wiped the fog off and put the glasses back on. They were just like, they're still killing black people. And when that happened, I was attending protests every day here in New York. And there were different things happening all across our nation. And there were certain places where, you know, I just felt like oh, they need things. And so after uh, a little under a month of attending protest here in New York, I went into my savings account. I packed my duffel bag, two pairs of cowboy boots, and I, I left. I started traveling, flying, buses, sometimes cars. Um, and I went to about 26 different states um, to go to protest and to volunteer and um, to use the money that I had to buy whatever people needed. And I wouldn't buy anything until I had already gone so I could talk to people one-on-one -on -one and say like, what do you guys need? What's happening? How can I help? What resources? Like, just let me know, like, I'm just here to provide and I just wanna know how I can provide. These protests were happening in their neighborhoods. So you would see, you know, a street of like, 300 people marching and you would see beautiful families like on the fence, like holding their baby and like outside, just like, just like a part of it. So I would go and I would just walk up to a family and say like, hey, I'm a stranger. How are you doing today? How have you been affected by COVID? What can I do? Like, tell me what you need. Do you have a Venmo? Like, cause I'm like, I understand like, you know, it's really like, like, not to shit on like massive organizations who like donate and do these things like that, but that's not really my speed. I'm more of a like, I'd rather put money in your hand because I know you're going to get it and that it's yours and that you have it. It's different when you're able to make that connection with someone and be with them in their front yard and hear that they need pampers, they need apple juice, their daughter's allergic to peanuts, nothing but peanuts. Even though I'm only in these cities for like three days at a time, like that one day makes, for me, feels like I've known them my whole life because I'm able to provide in a different way. That's the kind of turn that my activism took like these past few, like last months that I've been running around doing these things. And so yeah, in my travels and going to these places, I was unfortunately arrested 12 times and jailed four of those 12 times for the arrest. I think a com like something that people get confused with, all of us cannot be on the front line with our weapons. And by weapons, I mean our voices and our presence. We all cannot be 
out there at the same time. Because if all of us get killed at once, who's going to be the nurses? Who's going to report back to the base and tell them what we need for next time? Like what kind of mask we need because they're throwing tear gas at us. What kind of jackets we need because they're shooting us over bullets. Who's going to do that? People like get confused and think that like we want to be outside. That we want to be there. No. So there are singers in this crowd. There are painters in this crowd. There's a veterinarian in this crowd. There's a single mom in this crowd. We don't want to be out here fighting for the right to be. But here we are. We're outside fighting. And more recently, back here in New York, so the protest um, in Washington Square Park, I went to the protest with my, um, with my sister. When we get there, my sister was like, it feels weird tonight. And I was like, it really does. Because we're all wearing black in the park and there were no officers inside of the park. And if you had been to protests at Washington Square, you know there's always police everywhere, everywhere. We get there, there's no police in the park. And I was like, yeah, it does feel weird, doesn't it? She was like, yeah. I was like, well, you know, we're here and we're just gonna, we're just gonna do whatever we're gonna do. And then there was this guy there who was um, handing out uh, bandanas and Germex and masks and things like that. And um, me bringing up this guy will make sense towards the latter part of the story. So this guy there was handing out these things. So the protest starts, we're marching, we're walking, and we are, um, like making a left going towards like 7th Street. And as we're making that left, there's like a uh, army wall of bikes, of police bikes. These officers in these like, they look like all black Power Ranger costumes with police lights. So they start to like bike alongside of us um, in a very intimidating way. So we continue, we, we persist and we're walking and we're going, we're going, and then we get to this intersection where there's cars and there's cars like honking in solidarity. Like honking, da 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 da. And we're like, you know, we're like, now we're pumped. We're feeling it, we're just like, you know, the protest just started. This is like 15, 20 minutes into it. As we're walking, there was this girl who was like a few people ahead of me. My sister's hand is like on my arm. And we're walking, marching. This girl was like a few people ahead of me, was walking backwards, um, leading some of the chants. She steps back on one of the bicycles on accident and the officer falls backwards off the bike. He thinks people are throwing stuff at him. He gets back up like this and then before, I mean, this happened in less than a second. From the left side, you see all of these officers in like regular officer attire, not in the bike attire. Come around here, boom. This girl gets hit in her breast. And then after, that, after she gets hit, an open hand slaps her across the face. I separated myself from my sister, ran through two or three people, and I pushed him off of her as hard as I could. And he stumbled backwards. When he fell backwards, two officers grabbed my arms from behind my back like this, kicked my feet from under me, and slammed me to the ground, and then turned my face into the pavement repeatedly punched me in the eye and grabbed my dermal piercing. And I was saying over and over again, I'm not resisting, get the fuck off of me. I'm not resisting, get the fuck off of me. And then this girl who was shouting like, get off of him, he's gonna die. And I'm like, are you fucking deaf? I'm not resisting. And so as I'm shouting this, he pulls my shirt or like my jacket around this way. And he says, um, I can't hear your chants. And I was like, dude, just fucking take me to the fucking jail. I'm not arguing with you. And as it's going on, I already feel the soreness of my face. And I already know something's wrong, but I don't know how bad it is. So they hoist me up and I have the, uh, the zip ties on and it is on so tight. And I was like, look, man, I was like, can you loosen up my zip ties? I mean, I, they're too tight. I understand what's happening. I'm complying. I understand. I'm being arrested. Cool loosen the zip ties. And he's like, oh, so, you, so now you're being polite. And I was like, okay, can you, can you loosen the zip ties? I'm gonna die. They hurt. Loosen the zip ties. I was like, where am I gonna run to? Where am I gonna go? If I run, you're gonna shoot me in the back. Loosen the zip ties. He loosens the zip ties. And then I get, they put me onto the bus to go to the jail. And when I'm on the bus, I was like, 
hey, did you guys see what happened to that girl? Like, where's that girl at? Like, is she okay? I'm trying to talk to other people because I wasn't the only person arrested. M multiple of us were arrested. So we get to the jail and I'm still on about this girl. I'm just like, like, I don't even care what happens to me. Like, I know, I know what's going on, but I want to know where the girl is at. So I guess they don't, no one's answering any of my questions. Uh, they put me into holding. And as I'm in holding, remember I mentioned I had seen a guy handing out bandanas and germax telling us to like, be safe during the protests. That guy was a police officer. And I get to the, when I get to the jail, he was one of the police officers who was there. And so I was just like, I don't understand how they knew which direction we were going for them to swarm us like that. There were so many police officers and for them to get there in that amount of time doesn't make any sense. Like, and that quickness. And I was like, of course he told them, of course. And so I had become extremely angry when I was in my cell. because so I was just like, and my face was hurting and it hadn't even swollen up as bad as it had gotten yet after I was like punched in the face. And there was a, uh, uh, a trans girl who was arrested as well when we were there and they were um, about to put her in the men's holding cell. And I was like, there's six officers. One officer makes a racist remark and those other five officers don't chime in and say no. This is why we say they all suck. If a guy rapes a girl and then goes to his friend's house to play video games and tells his friends what he just did and none of them turn him in, they all raped her. All of them are rapists, every single one of them. So if you're on duty with someone and you witness something happen, you see something happen and you say nothing, you are a part of the problem. You also cause this. You are what's wrong. I don't care what's happening before your uniform is on and after you take it off. While it's on and you are working and you see these things happen and you say nothing, this is why we say this. So when that was happening and there were female cops who stood there and watched her get hit and didn't do anything. There were black cops who stood there Watched her get hit, did nothing. I'm unarmed and I'm doing what I can and I'm arrested, beaten. I'm like, you're a coward. Like, I don't, like, I just don't get it. So like, I tell myself, if this is what this guy is gonna do in front of all of these people to this defenseless girl, what does he do at home? What's happening where there aren't eyes? Yes, people are setting fire to targets. People are burning these things down. People are running into these stores and taking these things. But imagine 400 years of being in an abusive relationship with the same person. Imagine dating somebody for five years and they're beating the shit out of you, but they also feed you. And then one day you find out that there are 1,600 other people who are all in the same abusive relationship. And then you say to yourself, how are we gonna respond to this? People should be so lucky that all was burned down was a target. Imagine if all this aggression was taken to the neighborhoods of white people. You're so broken down that you still, even in your pain and your anger, don't want anyone to feel the same way you feel right now that you felt your whole life. You don't want that. So you're bringing down a store instead. This is all a response to abuse and people respond to abuse differently. The same way you respond to love differently, hate differently, and any sort of life event, we all respond differently. This is all of us responding to abuse differently, but at the same time. And it's all grouped together. So people associate one thing with one thing. So if you say, I'm going to a protest, someone's like, oh, you're burning and stealing and killing? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna have a conversation with you. And back to where I was thinking about disagreeing and, and not having conversations, that's one of those things where it's like, in the first fucking place, we didn't even wanna be out here at all to begin with. But then you who aren't outside are trying to tell me what's happening outside while you're inside. And being out in these spaces and being with these people, one of the pros to it is that there are some people who are you know, more introverted and kept to themselves, but still wanna be a part of something and do something. And there are people that I, that I have met 
through traveling to go to these places who would never have been outside, ever. Would have never been in a crowd of people shouting and chanting. Had never felt any sort of purpose for anything or a clear direction. And now feel a sense of empowerment about knowing the right way to stand up for something and speak out on things. And I've said this many times to people that whenever I go to, was going to protest like traveling, I would get so happy when I would see so many white people there. Because to me, I'm like, they can enter spaces that I can't and have conversations with folks that would not talk to me. They are able to go into a room that wouldn't give me the time of day and have talks with people who wouldn't talk to me. They can access family members that would never see my page or never know someone like me in real life and have conversations about what's happening out here, which is why I always go back to, we all have a role. All of us have a purpose for something. All of us have something to do. And there's no such thing as big roles or small roles because every single thing that we have to do job-wise has a different effect in the long run. So like you just putting something in a backpack may not seem as immense as getting hit in the face with a can of tear gas, but it's for the same mission, the same mission. So it can be, it can be very easy to slip into this idea of like, I, I can't do anything. There's nothing that I can help to contribute to this. I'm like, you contributing right now is you going to the kitchen and talking to your dad. That's contribution. You right now helping is Thanksgiving table. If someone says something transphobic, this is your protest. This dinner table, this is a protest. And people think that like a protest has to be out in the streets, megaphones, posters. No, your protest is behind the bar at Starbucks. When someone says, hey, those black guys look suspicious. Let's call the police. When do you feel the most vulnerable? When I'm by myself. Why? Uh, there's like no hiding. I'm like faced with everything all at once. It's challenging being vulnerable by yourself, especially when you have relied on so many vices to uh, get you through those moments of um, in your lonesome and always trying to find a blanket to cover whatever it is that you don't want people to see. But whenever I'm by myself, I see all of it. And um, I'm not scared of it. What are you afraid for people to see? How afraid I am to not be everything to everyone. I'm, I'm pretty confident, but I feel so weak and small when I think about the things that I can't do. Um, in terms of like helping. And so knowing that like if I were to go out and try to help and not help as many people as I wanted to, and even though people may say, oh, thank you for this help, or like you helped us, I still feel like I let them down. And it eats my soul. A bulk of it does stem from when I was a kid and kind of like swimming in a pool of uh, secrecy. Oh, like I can just stay here and like, keep to myself, no one will know what's happening inside of my brain, but then the pool got deeper and my feet couldn't touch the bottom anymore. And I was, you know, starting to drown a bit because I was, I didn't want to like be like my actual self and have like my actual self let people down because of their expectations of what they have of who I'm supposed to be and who I am. And it's like transferred into my adulthood that even like now that I am myself, I am so myself that I don't want to let people down because of how I am and who I am and what I have like set out to do with my life and my life's mission. So if there's something happening, you know, in my community, in my neck of the woods, at a shelter with some kids and I go to the shelter and I, I do whatever I can do, but then there's like another shelter in Chicago who's having a situation, a shelter in Los Angeles, and even though no one mentions the other 47 states, in my mind, I'm like, I have to go to them. Because I can't just go to three and not go to them all because I'm going to let them down. And so I create this thing in my head that's like, 
I have no choice but to be there. I don't even know if I do a good job at doing it, but I don't let anyone see me letting myself down. Even though no one outright says you let us down, I still feel it. For feeling not enough. Yeah, exactly. I get put in this space that it only exists in here where there's this voice that's just like, you're gonna let him down, you're gonna let him down. And it's like 15 year old Eves, who's like in that pool. He's like, there's space in this pool, man. Come and swim. And I'm just like, nope, I'm out. I have a towel, I'm already dry. I'm not getting in the pool. And 15 year old Eves is like, really? You sure? And that happens to me when I'm by myself, you know? I try to hide that from people so that I don't um, let people down. So they don't know that I'm always in fear of letting my own self down. When do you feel the most beautiful or handsome or whatever word feels good to you? I have really grown to like really love my time with me. And you know, my most vulnerable and most beautiful times is when I'm hanging out by myself. I do this thing called a self date where I, uh, I take myself out on a date, I get dressed up really nice and I put my phone in airplane mode. And I just go out to eat and I go to a movie and I get a large popcorn. And I just hang out in my space. It just feels good. I love being able to hear myself, especially being sober. I hear myself in a totally different way. And not only am I sober, but like I'm out to myself. Before we finish, um, yeah, I saw, I saw your adorable post on Instagram uh, the other day with your brothers and and I know you haven't talked about them yet, so I just wanted to ask, like, is there anything that you'd want to say about them? Ooh, yeah, so I have uh, many siblings, but my, uh, my baby brothers, I have three of them. The love that my brothers uh, have for me and show me such a pure, genuine way. And even in, like when I mentioned how I'm sentimental and I go to receipts, um, I. I go to pictures of my brothers every day. Why in your body, why in your skin, why in your journey is it a good place to be? Because it's important for not only others, but for myself to see that I survived and that it is possible to survive. But also um, surviving doesn't mean that you're living, but I'm doing both at the same time. and. Um, I'm so blessed to say that. We hope you were inspired by this episode. Until next week, that's it from me, Elisa. And me, Lily. If you were touched by this story, please take a moment to share the episode with any friends or family who could benefit from understanding that they are enough as they are. And if you agree that facades separate us and being radically honest brings us together, Please help spread the movement for radical self-acceptance by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. Each month, we'll send a free copy of our book, True Style is What's Underneath, The Self-Acceptance Revolution, to one of our podcast reviewers. We can't skip ahead to a happy ending or live inside a photoshopped image or an Instagram filter. There is no finding oneself when glossing over the truth.